Hebrews chapter 7, if your Bibles are open, starting in verse 1. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask for the blessing, the anointing of your spirit on your word, on me. Remove me from the equation that we would hear from Jesus. Lord, speak to each heart what each heart needs. Magnify your word and your name above everything else. And Lord, may we leave here transformed by your word. It's in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. By way of review and in context of this scripture, the writer, remember, and again, if you're new or you, you haven't been here in a while or you've forgotten, the writer was writing primarily to Jewish believers. Now, this is kind of interesting. We just had Miriam here yesterday and Sam a few weeks ago, but was writing primarily to Jewish believers who have found faith in Messiah who by grace, they're no, they're no longer under the law, and they now have a high priest in Christ Jesus that resides not in Jerusalem, but in the Holy, and Holy of Holies in heaven. And yet more than that, didn't you love this? He's nearby. He's not, Jesus is not just in heaven. He's nearby. As he lives within us, he's an anchor to our souls. And by the work of the Spirit, he takes us into the presence of heaven. Amen? Amen? We go into the Holy of Holies. I've not been to heaven literally, but I know I've been there in my prayer life. How about you? But within this cross-section of believers, again, they're not all Jewish believers. Primarily, there was Gentiles in this church as well. But in this cross-section of believers, there is the pressure of the world that some are yielding to. Did you know that? And that church then... 2,000 years ago, some were yielding to the pressures of the world. There's the very real threat of persecution, which we don't really understand in this country, perhaps yet. But our brothers and sisters certainly do in Iran and North Korea and parts of India. There's the temptation. There's also going on in the, in the church there, there's, there's this temptation to return to Judaism. And if they do, they'll be well accepted 
by the unsaved Jewish neighbors and the Jewish community. There's also, in the midst of this same congregation, we have these different profiles. And You know, high school, you have cliques. These are your different cliques in the church, right? There's also a group with spiritual laziness, just apathy. And lastly, there's also some that are faithful and compassionate in their service, and ministry is happening in their life. And the writer describes what they are doing as a labor of love. Remember that passage is back in chapter 6, verse 10. And not only that, it says a labor of love that God will not forget. Those of you that served like crazy last week, if you did it in a pure heart, God will not forget it. You'll be blessed for it. I don't know when, but he will keep his promises. But they're all being reminded to take stock, to be obedient. Not if you feel like being obedient, just to say, Lord, I will be obedient. To mature. God wants you and I to mature. Do you believe that? He wants us to mature. He says, I want you to keep growing. You can't stay 16 forever, spiritually. Uh, At least you're not a toddler now, but you can't stay 16 forever either. You can't stay 21 forever spiritually. And God says, I want you to mature and to endure in the faith. But as we open chapter 7, the author once again is going to travel back in time. Back to the journey of Abraham. He had a long journey, didn't he? And this unique encounter that Abraham had long before the Levitical priesthood, long before the tabernacle, long before the temple were even thought of. Abraham had no concept that these things were coming. They hadn't been mentioned yet. Much less had they been established. Now, in addition to the Holy Spirit unveiling a much deeper understanding of what was recorded there in the book of Genesis, I also believe that chapter 7 here is intended to make real for us and the church 2,000 years ago to make real the priesthood of Christ. And that it was God's ultimate goal that Abraham, what Abraham saw was a foreshadow of what we can now, and the church there in Hebrews, could now daily depend on. Daily you can depend on Jesus as your priest. Do you believe that? Daily you can depend on him. He's not going to get sick. He's not going to have a day where he doesn't make it to the temple. Daily you can depend on him. God wants it to be real in our lives. The end of chapter 5, if you kind of go back a few weeks, the end of chapter 5 and half of chapter 6 is in part questioning. Remember the author takes this turn about you're sluggish, you're immature, you should be, you should be uh, eating more than just milk by now. Remember these passages? So the, the uh, author took a detour because he questioned if they had the maturity to grasp the significance and the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek and ultimately the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He was like, I'm not sure you guys are ready to digest this or even want to. But then he kind of thinks it through and kind of gives some admonishment and gives some chastening and says, all right, I think you're ready now. Back to chapter 7. That's kind of what takes place. You're actually going to, it's like a, if you're having a real conversation, it would be like that parking saying, I'm not sure y'all are ready for this. I'm not sure you want this. 
Are you sure? And they're like, oh, no, we do, we do, we do. Okay, on with chapter 7. That's where we're at. So if you're taking notes this morning, you see the title, Both King and Priest. And the first thing we want to take a look at related to this is what I've titled His Position. Um, and again, this is centered on Melchizedek, this seventh chapter. Uh, but again, we'll, we'll look at how this portrays Christ himself. This is the fourth time, if you've been taking notes or maybe you ever highlighted the name Melchizedek in your Bible, this is the fourth time that Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Fourth time, right here, uh, in verse 1. Verse 10 of the same passage which we read, if you go down to verse 10, still on the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him, uh, verse 10 will mark the fifth time, and there's still four more additional mentions of the name Melchizedek in chapter 7. So for the total of nine times, his name is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, nine times. His name is mentioned only twice and everywhere else in the Bible, both in the Old Testament. But nine times in Hebrews, two times everywhere else in the Bible, twice in the Old Testament, the Genesis account of him meeting Abraham that's referenced here in our text. And then in Psalm 110, which we read together, which mentions, uh, which, which is uh, also requoted in chapter 5. But the entire thrust of this letter is to fan the flames of our faith our confidence. Did you know God wants you to have confidence? Because faith, if it didn't also bring forth confidence, would just kind of be static, right? Does that make sense? That if you had great faith but didn't do anything with it, I have, I have such great faith that I'm going to sit here and wait for someone to do something. Yeah, your faith should breed a confidence. But then also a perseverance because some days are really hard, aren't they? Some days are harder than others, and you don't even know why. You can't even tell why. Some days it's, it's just our flesh feels like a thousand-pound weight around us. But he wants to fan the flames of faith and confidence and perseverance in the hearts of the reader, those in the first century, but also for us now. And the best way to strengthen our faith is with truth. Truth. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Don't read the Word when you feel like it. Read it, and you'll then feel like it. Amen. If this was a sermon rather than a letter, the author of Hebrews might have opened chapter 7 along the lines of something like this. Let's all turn in your scrolls to Genesis chapter 14. So, since you don't have a scroll, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Imagine they got really good at scrolls. Like, it would take us like an hour to find the text in a scroll. <laughs> but, you know, they would pick up your smartphone and, and, and say, what do I do with this thing? And you would pick up the scroll and say, what do I do with this thing? And they would feel smart on one end and you'd feel smart on the other end. And, but Genesis chapter 14, let's look at the, um, let's take a quick look at what took place. You see it in context, uh, the returning of Abraham from uh, a great victory a miraculous victory over multiple kings where he should have been destroyed. He has a small army of his own servants, and he wins back. 
everything that had been taken away from Sodom, where his, where his uh, nephew Lot had been taken captive. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 14, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Kind of interesting, huh? He was the priest of God Most High. And he, lowercase he being Melchizedek, blessed him, lowercase Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram. He hadn't, his name hadn't been changed yet to Abraham. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. <laughs> Abram's like, I haven't possessed all this yet. God says we actually are seated in the heavenlies already, even though we can't sometimes sense that yet. Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, Abraham giving to Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, now I'll stop there. Um, actually, we just need that verse. The rest of it is uh, related to Abraham resisting the opportunity to have the spoils, and he says no to all that. But he does... You see here he comes and he basically gets in a prostrate worship position towards Melchizedek, offers up a tithe. Melchizedek blesses him. And before we look at the significant aspects of this meeting, the first question we might ask, so you, you just saw the context what took place. Uh, Melchizedek comes out with the bread and wine. And he gives this blessing to Abram, and he, and he blesses the name of God. And, and so they certainly take of that bread and wine. There's not much mention of all that takes place, but it was brought out that they would have this feast together. And Abram is subservient to Melchizedek and offers him this tithe and all of this that takes place. But before we look at the significance of each of these uh, details, the first question we might ask is, who is Melchizedek? Mentioned nine times in Hebrews, but only two times in the whole rest of the Bible. They're in Psalm 110 and then in Genesis 14. Well, the scriptures give us uh, a few important facts as related to Melchizedek, his position and his authority, but not much else. There's not a lot that tells us. I mean, we, we hear what he did or, or what his role was in Salem, but not much else. He's never seen or mentioned prior or after this encounter with Abraham. In other words, we never see him again in Abraham's life. It's the first time we see him in Abraham's life. We don't see him mentioned anywhere else in Abraham's life. And not, any, and not and again mentioned again until David in the Psalms. But here's what we know about his position. He's the king of Salem. As we talked about a few weeks, Salem will later become Jerusalem. Salem becomes Jerusalem eventually. But at that time, it was called Salem. And he's the king of Salem, so he's the king of what will be Jerusalem. He's also the priest of Salem, so he's the priest of the future Jerusalem. So he's king and priest. He's also called priest of the Most High God. So we know he's not priest of the gods of the Canaanites. This man was a priest to God Almighty, Yahweh. Now, at this time in Abraham's life, Israel as a nation is not even born yet. Isaac hasn't even been born at this time. Abram's still wondering, uh, Lord, uh, uh, me and Sarah are past childbearing years, in case you did not know. And uh, you know, Lot, 
we'd like to adopt him, but he's not doing so great, and, you know, he doesn't even want to be with us anyway, and, you know, you kind of go through the thing. Um, we, we've got options here. Sarah's thinking about different things, uh, but, but later Israel will be born. And when Israel becomes a nation, God divides the role of king and priest. You know that, right? King and priest are divided roles in the Jewish state, in the nation of Israel. Even King David was never the priest over Israel. David was never priest. He was not the priest. But Melchizedek was both. He was king and priest. And that was forbidden under the law. You had to have one king and a priest. Of course, at one time, God told the children of Israel, I don't want, even want you to have a king. The high priest was on the Aaron and then the Levitical priesthood. But in ancient Canaan, it was very common for the kings of the ancient Canaanite world to serve as the highest-ranking priest and also be the king for whatever religion they practiced. And so Melchizedek was most likely a Canaanite man who was both king and priest, uh, very much like Job. You guys familiar with Job? Job was not Jewish. Job was Gentile, as far as we know. Uh, Job was, uh, at minimum, probably a peer of Abram or Abraham, either even before Abraham or sometime in the similar time frame. And we know this because there's no mention of the priesthood or anything in the book of Job. And so we believe that Job either predates Abraham, but like Noah, Noah offered a sacrifice, didn't he? He built an altar. Noah, Job, these men were before the priesthood. Um, and yet they were not Jewish, and yet they were followers of God. Job was a very, matter of fact, it, it appears that when Job was alive, he was the most righteous man on the earth. When Noah was alive, he was the most righteous man on the earth. And then comes a guy like Melchizedek, and perhaps he was, which is hard to believe. If Abraham was alive, there's actually someone that outranks him. There's always someone more mature than you in the faith. Did you know that? It keeps us humble. There's always someone God says, no, 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 you're not the most righteous person in this room. I've got someone you can learn from. And if they really are righteous, they'll be a really humble person on top of it all. They won't be, hey, by the way, I am actually a little more righteous than you. you know, then you're not swapping your, uh, I got this gift, you got this gift, let's compare, none of that. Notice, notice there was no rivalry with Abraham and Melchizedek either. It was a very beautiful moment, wasn't it? Abraham was like, wasn't bummed out, like, man, I can't believe there's someone here that I have to actually bow down to, come in and be a little lower. No. Uh, but, so he's not performing a Jewish role capacity. I mean, Melchizedek is not performing under the Levitical priesthood. Predates all that. And that's the point that the author is making. Now, um, again, these men like Noah, well before Abraham, well before Israel, well before the law. And Melchizedek here was God's chosen servant who also performs priestly duties and sacrifices uh, that were made to God. And so no matter what, God had a witness of himself in that part of the world, even without Abraham. Some Jewish uh, rabbis in the Midrash writings propose that Shem, you might, you might hear this, I just want to throw it out there, 
uh, Shem, who is Noah's son, uh, is Melchizedek. And actually, I don't know if you know this, I've talked about it before, but Shem actually outlives Abraham. Noah's son, Shem, who Abraham is in the direct line of Shem. Abraham is a descendant of Shem. And yet Shem, Noah's son, outlives Abraham. And so some Jewish writings and some of the rabbis uh, have proposed that Shem was Melchizedek, and that's why he outranked Abraham, because he was a patriarch directly from Noah, uh, which makes sense in a few areas, but it, to me it doesn't match Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, and we'll get to verse 3. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't share that view. I'm just saying that you, if you hear that, um, it's out there. And lastly, could Melchizedek be Christ himself? Some people propose that Melchizedek is not a Canaanite man, but actually Jesus Christ in the flesh. And that is possible as well because there are several Christophanies, which is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus Christ, or they're also sometimes called Theophanies, uh, which is the Godhead in human form. Only Jesus, if you ever see Jesus in the Bible and you can see him physically and live, you know it's Jesus because if you see the Father, you would die. Right? No man can look upon him. Now in heaven it will be different. All of our sins will be gone. We'll be, we can look upon uh, the Father in heaven. But on this lifetime, uh, we, only if God puts himself and veils himself in human flesh like Jesus can he be seen. So even when you see a theophany, if you will, same, same reference point. Uh, but one example of uh, this is four chapters later in Genesis chapter 18. It's expressly stated then the Lord appeared to Abraham, chapter 18. We actually get a specific reference that Abraham saw the Lord along with, and he was walking with two angels. Remember the other two angels, they go on to Sodom. But the one stays, and I believe he's Jesus himself, because it says the Lord appeared to Abraham. Not talking about, there was three men. One, I believe, was Jesus. The other two angels, they go on to Sodom, and they pronounce judgment on the city of Sodom. But the one stays back, and that's Christ himself, I believe, uh, because it's, he says the Lord appeared. And remember, Sarah makes a meal. Man, when Jesus shows up at your house, you better make a meal. Just, Abraham's like, get cooking. Make, some real, make your best stuff. Do it really good. Do it right. We may never get this chance again. That's in chapter 18. But I believe that uh, Christ appears to Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32, because Jacob says, I wrestled with the Lord. And kind of, Jesus said, all right, we've had about enough of that. I'm going to tweak your hip for the rest of your life. Pop. <laughs> he walks with the limb. He's like, now you'll never forget who's in charge of your life. Genesis chapter 32. Moses, in Exodus 24, uh, he sees under the feet paved sapphire. There on the mountain, I believe he sees the very feet of Jesus standing right in front of him. Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, Joshua says, who are you with? He said, I'm commander of the Lord's army. And he believes it to be the Lord himself. Uh, Judges 13, I believe Jesus himself appears to Samson's parents. And these are just some of the appearances. There's other, Christophany. Before the virgin birth, Jesus comes and unveils himself prior to him coming in certain instances. And at most 
let's, uh, all of these uh, instances that I, that I mentioned here, they're all to people that are in the line of Abraham and will be part of Israel. But what about the uniqueness of Melchizedek? Again, so some, some might propose maybe Melchizedek is actually Christ himself and that that's who Abraham is paying this tithe to. Possibly. Again, I, I hold to, uh, let's take a look at the next point this morning, his portrait. So we have his position. We know his position was king and priest. But what about the portrait? What is the portrait, uh, the picture God is painting? Why is his name mentioned nine times in the book of Hebrews? This particular book, God is determined to make sure that the church understands the relevance of this man, the ministry, and how it maps to Christ himself. It is possible that Melchizedek was Jesus. I believe there's enough validity to that perspective uh, to make that case. But personally, uh, I lean towards him not being Christ. That's just me. I, I lean toward, and I, I, I used to lean the other way, and the more I've studied, I, I lean towards him not being Christ. But I, I have no issues with people saying, no, I really believe that he is. And, and I got the verses, and some of the uh, points that they'll make are right here in chapter 7. And I, and I understand all that. Uh, but um, it's certainly, uh, from orthodoxy and theology standpoint, it would be fine to take that position because there's certainly some things that there's enough mystery around him that that door remains open. And we'll find out who's right when we get to heaven. Jesus is like, all right, those of you wondering about Melchizedek, huh? how many of you wanted to know? Who? He'll either bring him out and stand beside him, or he's like, I am Melchizedek. You know, so one of the two is going to happen, right? Because either way, Melchizedek, you stand here. Abraham, you stand here. I'm here. Let's tell them how it all went down, right? You know, isn't that going to be great when you get to heaven? All your questions, God's going to answer them all. He's going to say, "Look, I'm going to. You're not. It's not going to be flannel graphs. That's the real people. Uh, you're not fl- slapping it up on the board there. He's like, really, Melchizedek, come join me. Unless he is Melchizedek. But I lean towards that Melchizedek was a Canaanite priest, much like. Uh, Noah are much like uh, Job in the sense that they were godly men for a specific purpose. But I have no issue with those who have this Christophany view. Uh, What's abundantly clear, in light of what Hebrews is teaching us uh, of the ministry of Christ as our high priest, uh, and what we can see in all the men that God used in the Old Testament, is that Melchizedek is definitely a portrait of Christ. Whether he's Christ himself He's definitely a portrait of Christ. An Old Testament mirror of the New Testament reality of the incarnation. More specifically, Christ's post-resurrection role. I think you'd agree with me that Jesus, when he was walking Galilee, feeding the 5,000, ministering to people, he was not walking in the role of high priest in that time period. Would you agree with that? This is an unveiling that comes post-resurrection. Now, he already was high. Don't get me wrong. He was already king, and he didn't take on the crown. He was already high priest, and he didn't walk into the Holy of Holies. There was a Holy of Holies that he could have strolled into, rightly so, but he never did that in his ministry. Correct? So he kind of was saying, you need to first repent and believe in me as Savior. Post-resurrection, you're going to know all the rest about me, that I'm the king that I'm the priest, all of these things. But Melchizedek was already a portrait of the post-resurrection Jesus. That makes sense? Before there ever was the cross, Melchizedek was already a picture of what was to come. 
this post-resurrection Christ. In much the same way that Isaac, remember Isaac was the begotten son of the, I'm talking about portraits in the Old Testament. So think about some of these portraits that you're seeing. Isaac was a portrait of the begotten son of the father, Isaac, the begotten son of the father. Moses was a portrait of Christ as deliverer, right? Deliverer. Joshua was a picture of Christ as conqueror, conqueror. Um, Boaz, he was a picture of Christ as redeemer. David was a picture of Christ as king. So we see these different portraits. These were real men, but their lives were lived out as pointing to Christ, whether they even knew when they were born, their moms were holding baby, moms holding baby David or baby Boaz, and they have no idea that, or baby Moses, each of you will have a portrait of the Messiah, but you're going to find out soon enough how that's going to be lived out in their life. Melchizedek, he is the pre-incarnate picture of Christ as both priest and king. The only Jesus would both wear the crown and the robes of priesthood. Not allowed in anywhere else in the Jewish law of Moses. No, nowhere else could that be found except in Jesus. Of course, before, before all that is Melchizedek. Nowhere else is it found in the Old Covenant that you'll find. Now look at verses 2 and 3. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So we have these two kind of uh, definitions of his name dovetailing together, king of righteousness and king of peace in verse 2. Look at verse 3. Now this is where some people would say, well, this, this is why I believe it has to be Jesus, verse 3. And again, I'm not taking issue with that standpoint because there's two ways to look at this particular passage. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Um, now, one of the reasons why I don't believe it's Shem in this text is we have Shem's genealogy. We know Shem had a father. His father was Noah. So to me, that eliminates Shem right there. Thank you, Midrash writings. Deep stuff, but it can't really be because we know Shem's father and we know the genealogy of Shem. Jesus, he has a mother, but he doesn't have an earthly father. But again, this is all the way back to someone well before Jesus comes to Bethlehem saying, without father, without mother. Well, what I believe this is saying is the scriptures never record his genealogy on purpose. God says to the writers, the, old, the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. So God tells Moses, I actually do know Melchizedek's genealogy, but I'm not going to let you write it because it's a type. So don't write anything about his genealogy. It's a picture here. So that's, uh, the Bible has passages that uh, are uh, specific, like literal, and it also have passages that are actually telling us some inference of the fact that, hey, it's fact that there's no record of his genealogy. There's no record of these things. Um, but, the, but the key point in here where I believe he is a Canaanite king as a, or a Canaanite man as opposed to Jesus but made like the Son of God in, the, in this text. Made like the Son of God. Um, Jesus was not made, he already was. So again, these are just 
again, I, and, I, and I, you can actually hear really good biblical arguments that would actually take everything I said and turn it back and say, here's why you're wrong, Tim. And I'm okay with that. I, I'm just saying that both are possibilities, and I'm not here to, like, you know, grind that point. I'm just simply saying what we do know, it's a portrait of Jesus. If it's Jesus, it's a 100% article. <laughs> if it's a portrait, it's a great God made this man, specifically this man, to set up this portrait in advance. So why is this portrait so important to these predominantly Hebrew believers and to us today? Because you might say, well, I've studied the Bible and I've never really gotten into this detail as we are this morning. Let's take a look at uh, why I believe, because this is written to real believers, and it's written not to they know a bunch of stuff, but that it would actually inform and strengthen their faith and their walk. And so remember, predominantly Hebrew believers, they really, really are ingrained in the temple and the priesthood and that these things, and Jesus kind of blows up a lot of models, doesn't he? I mean, he rips the veil in two. His death, I mean, the veil ripped in two. And, and, and 70 years later, there's not even a temple. If you're a practicing Jewish person, uh, I've, I was talking to Sam about this. I said, when you're talking to unsaved Jewish people that say we need this, I mean, what temple can they go to? Well, they can't. There is no temple unless Jesus is superior to it all. And the writer is saying, just like Jesus is superior to it all, there was already a foretype that made the case before anyone even understood it. Melchizedek's saying, hey, I'm over here. Long before all of you figured it out, I already was a foreshadow of these things. So why is this so important? Why is this portrait so important to us? A couple of reasons. Uh, number one um, was the real foundation with the father of faith. Um, the father of faith is Abraham, right? So we're called the sons and daughters of Abraham. Um, but the real foundation of Abraham, I think I've got a sub-bullet here, uh, you want to make the whole life of Abraham and, his, and the ministry that comes from him real to both Israel and to the church. So if you look at the things that come from his offspring, if you're, if you're saved, you're the spiritual offspring of Abraham. But God still to this day, now, in the past it was priests, but today he uses pastors. At the time of Melchizedek, he brings out what? Bread and wine. Long before there was a Passover, the bread and wine was already visible. Did you see it? He said he brought out the bread and wine. And today we're taking of the Lord's Supper. Isn't it amazing that God has us taking the Lord's Supper today? And God said, I'm going to make it real to you that Everything that you are still doing today, you're going to take the Lord's Supper. I had already foreshadowed it, even with Melchizedek coming out. He brought the bread and wine. And so there later would come the Passover. And then Jesus would take the same Passover and say, this is my body and what? Blood, which is broken for you. The tithes, the tithes were before the law. There was, there was no law. And Abraham, Abraham didn't say, well, Moses said I should give 10%. It was already in the heart to be a giver, that God's already wanted the body of Christ to be givers, to be giving back to the Lord for the both worship of God, but also the support of ministry. Melchizedek didn't say, no, no, you keep it. He said, no, you're doing the right thing. And he, and he accepted it. So uh, the things that were already, in other words, these things were 
the, the Jewish community would have thought all of these things came from the law, Passover. And then the writer could say, yeah, Passover came with Moses, but bread and wine came with Melchizedek. Tithes came with Moses. Uh-uh, Abraham already gave tithes. Well, the priesthood came with Aaron. No, priesthood was with Melchizedek already. Do you see what I'm saying? He, the writer is saying, I'm going to make it real to you that God had already set the blueprint long before even Abraham even knew he was going to have a nation come from him. Well, he knew he was going to have a nation come from him, but he hadn't seen it yet. Uh, number two, why is this portrait so important? All of those who have come to God by faith must have a submissive spirit. Do you agree with that? Yeah. That Abraham, who was God's servant at the time, you saw his submissiveness to Melchizedek. And Israel, under the old covenant, the church requires, the church today, it requires submission for effective service and the blessing of God. If you and I aren't submissive to one another, we'll never have harmony. Let me go back to Washington. Do you see submissive spirits in Washington? No. You see anarchy. You see pride. You see, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. Uh, I'm more elite than you. All that. But submissive spirits, you saw in Melchizedek and Abraham two submissive spirits. Now, even though one had seniority, he didn't lord it over him. What did he do? He blessed Abraham. He didn't say, that's all right. You get down here. and, you, and that's, Let's get it up to 20%, young man. No. Submission. Abraham had a submissive spirit. We need a submissive spirit. Number three, and the church and, and the early church needed a submit. Number three, the fulfillment of all the types, images, and roles in leading the people of God found in the scriptures are all found in who? In Jesus. All the types and foreshadows are found in Jesus. Jesus is the king and priest over Jerusalem and Israel, over the church. The coming Jerusalem that's yet to come and the eternal kingdom of God, including the new Jerusalem, will come down. All of these things, I don't have time to get into all these because at, at the same time, the writer of Hebrews is not casting Israel aside. No, he's simply saying that the blueprint was even before Israel. Israel will play its role, but Melchizedek was pre-established that Jesus is above all of these things. And so it's, what does it do? It centers us on Christ. When if we're centered on Christ, we'll have a real faith, we'll have real submissive spirit, and we'll have a real appreciation for all that Jesus is. These are the reasons uh, that we see this portrait here. Um, now, notice the medium Melchizedek's name. We talked about it briefly. King of righteousness, king of peace. In Psalm 85.10 and verse 13, we have this passage. Mercy and truth have met together. And there's the same two words, righteousness and peace have kissed. Righteousness will go before him, and he shall make his footsteps our pathway. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Jesus says, I'll make my footsteps your pathway, and I'm going to embed in you, in your spirit, righteousness and peace. You know that we can't, we can't create righteousness or peace. We can only receive it. And the whole world has proven this. We, as, as a human kind, we can't produce righteousness or peace. What we produce is war and sin. That's what we're really good at. We are really good at destruction, just like Satan, right? That's why Jesus said, you're like your father, the devil, unless I adopt you. And then when he comes, he says, I'll put righteousness and peace, and then I'll make your footsteps, or, or his footsteps will be our pathway. 
Number, the second verse here I wanted to show you in Romans 14, 7. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, which is actually religious rituals. It's actually not talking about, you know, like, uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, five guys and, you know, uh, all that stuff. No, it's not about, I'm talking about that. You hungry now? Anyway, uh, we're getting close. But righteousness and peace, and I love the New Testament throws a word in here too, and joy. You don't want just righteousness and peace. You want joy. Jesus said, I've come that your joy might be what? Full. In the what? Holy Spirit. That now we have Christ living in us. So we know um, one of the names of Christ in Isaiah 9 is the Prince of Peace. And he's the one that controls peace. We know he's also King of Kings. Which brings us to our final point of observation this morning as we come to a close. His preeminence. Uh, we see his preeminence again, uh, ver verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. Again, we're talking about Melchizedek, but as it points to Jesus. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment that receives tithes from the people, according to the law, that is, from their brethren, uh, though they come from the loins of Abraham, whose genealogy is not uh, derived from them, and yet he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Again, we saw Melchizedek bless Abraham, who had the promises. Abraham had the promises, but Melchizedek did the blessing. He did the priestly blessing. So we have this preeminence of Melchizedek over the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. He's over it. Martin Luther said, uh, in his life, Christ is an example showing us how to live. In his death, he is a sacrifice satisfying our sins. In his resurrection, a conqueror. In his ascension, a king. In his intercession, a high priest. In his intercession. Jesus is all, he, he's preeminent in all things. Melchizedek is a picture of this, but Jesus is preeminent in all these things. And understand that Christ is now the example to us in his, in his word, he's no longer, what I mean by that is Christ is now not an example to us re-dying. Jesus will never re-die again. Amen. Aren't you glad? Yes. That he'll never suffer again. He's not re-dying. He's already done that once. He did that once. He's not daily resurrecting from the dead. He resurrected once. But in his post-resurrection, there is a role now that he does daily, and that is king and priest. That makes sense? Yes, yes. He is saving people, but he's not re-dying, and he's not re-resurrecting day after day after day. Uh, that's why some people have a problem with the crucifix, because Jesus is not on the cross. He's risen. He, he, it better be like an empty tomb, right? Now, we're thankful that he died on the cross, but he's not on the cross. He's risen from the dead. But what he is doing daily is priestly duties interceding for us. Does that make sense? Daily, he, we're bowing before him as king. And we're still thankful to the Savior, but he's not re-dying or re-resurrecting. And as we can see, that's again, Melchizedek's ministry showed the post-resurrection, king and priest. Melchizedek was not dying. He was, it was that post-resurrection view. And we can see that it points to the future role of Christ both now, Melchizedek was pointing to what Jesus is doing for us right now as head of the church, and what he will continue to do for all eternity, which will be king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? 
that is, that's the picture that it was pointing towards. Verses 4 through 10, I don't have time to reread all those. We read them. But we have the superiority of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood, even over Abraham. It says, consider how great this man that even Abraham was kind of coming to him, saying, I, I, I've got to worship, and you're the guy I'm going to come to to present my offering to the Lord. And as you know, Jesus asserted himself over Abraham as well. In John 8, 58, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders says, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, I'm greater than Abraham. And Melchizedek was that picture prior. In the Jewish tradition, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Jewish tradition, the patriarch or the progenitor is always greater than the descendants. So in other words, Abraham is greater than Moses. Even though Moses has a high, if they were putting up kind of the, the Mount Rushmore of Jewish patriarchs, Abraham gets the number one spot. Does that make sense? Because in the Jewish tradition, the patriarch or the progenitor is greater than all the descendants. Moses is not greater than Abraham in the mindset. But then Melchizedek says, hello, what about me? <laughs> you know, he could say that. He wouldn't say that. But I'm saying uh, because Abraham would say, yes, that's true. In my lifetime, I brought the worship of God to Melchizedek. So the writer is making the case that if Abraham, the father of fathers, bowed down to and was blessed by Melchizedek, then the greater or the, or the senior of the two would have been Melchizedek. And that the priesthood both predates the Levitical priesthood, but it also outranks it, predates it and outranks it. In fact, Levi and the priesthood, he makes the case they paid their tithes through the loins of Abraham to Melchizedek. This is why the writer said, you're not, are you all ready for meat? Because if you're ready just for a baby bottle of milk, this seventh chapter might kind of rock your world a little bit. But uh, I hope you're following along. We're about done here. But the line of argument is using the very Jewish traditions themselves and the very uh, law itself to say that the patriarchs, if in fact they're over the descendants, this is important that anyone would be don't be tempted to return to Judaism because God has already set the model that Melchizedek is over the priesthood. So if you say, well, I need to kind of re-get back into taking my stuff to the temple and doing all that stuff, and Paul, or the writer of Hebrews here, we don't know if it's Paul or Luke or whatever, but no, 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 Jesus is your high priest. You have access to the heavenly of heaven, the holy holies in heaven right now. Don't be tempted to return to a works-based faith. And by the way, some of you quick thinkers might be saying, is this true that I don't have to give tithes because my parents and grandparents, I'm in their loins? So is, that, is, this, is this real that I, I can actually bypass that? Uh, nice try on that. But um, all giving would stop after one generation if that's the point that was being made, and that's not the point that's being made uh, at all. But... Um, uh, even the priest had to give. We, we'd later find out in the, in the law that the priest had to give as well. Uh, but this is establishing that the Levitical priesthood is through Abraham, but it's inferior to Melchizedek in authority. I'm not saying it's inferior. If God created the Levitical priesthood, it's not an inferior thing. I'm saying in authority levels. Does that make sense? Abraham was not inferior to Melchizedek, but in authority level, he submitted to the authority of Melchizedek. Um, so in any... 
in this room, if I have an authority position, you're not in fear to me, but there is a difference as far as responsibility. Does that make sense? So all of these things, God is just saying, hey, Melchizedek serves this key role. Um, back in Genesis 14, we see his title, Priest of the Most High God. God gave the Levitical priesthood for a very important reason, but also for a season. For a reason, but also for a season. And it'll come back again, the millennium reign of Christ. The Levitical priesthood will come back because Israel has not finished some of the things that God set for, for them to finish. It's like they, they took an exam and they still have like a quarter of the exam left that's not been completed. And God's kind of in this holding pattern, but there was a reason and a season for the Levitical priesthood, and it will come back in the millennium reign of Christ, and it will be finally fulfilled in all the things that it was supposed to do, but Israel kept walking away from God, as you know, right? From the judges to the kings, and God's going to say, no, no, we're going to get this thing right for a thousand years. And then it will be, the books will be closed, and Jesus will take all the foreshadows and types, and for all eternity, he will be the one to be the central focus point of all these things. Uh, but uh, there was a season and a reason, but Jesus, again, like Melchizedek, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, the king, the king tribe. Uh, he's come to fulfill the order of Melchizedek, the type, the portrait, the prototype, if you will, of Melchizedek, to fulfill and bring the portrait of an eternal high priest. And it says... Um, in verse 3, he remains a priest continually, an eternal high priest to the reality of a present and needy people like us who need a high priest. Amen? The present reality is we need him, but he is going to be our high priest for all eternity. Amen? This is a priest not bound by the temple, not bound by earth, not bound by genealogies, not bound by time, not bound by space. You see... Even Abraham needed a priest. And we need the perfect holy priest that alone provides our righteousness and our peace. And his name is Jesus. Let's close. Father, we just bow before you. Humbly. Lord, some of these things are even still. I, I've studied them and they're beyond our understanding. And yet we accept them as true. That you sent Abraham before this man who is not of Israel or the priesthood, but he was your high priest to set the model that you would send one above all, perfect, holy, sinless, righteous, worthy to be king and worthy to be priest. And his name is Jesus that we'll be remembering this morning with the taking of the, the bread and the, and the wine or the juice this morning. And so, Lord, we may not understand all the gravity of what we've even read, but we look forward to the day when we'll be sitting at the feet of our high priest and our Savior and our King and our Redeemer. And, Lord, having Jesus teach us, and whether Jesus is Melchizedek, Lord, or he brings out Melchizedek, as the sons and daughters of Abraham, we'll get to see it all and understand it all because you've saved us from our sins. And so we thank you 
We, help, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see these things more clearly and that it would, in fact, strengthen our faith. Make us more dependent upon you. 